Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. This is Pastor Zach. And this is Pastor Mark. And this is episode 16, and we are going to be getting into maybe one of the most controversial discussions that we've had. Uh, you can look back through our catalog of, of, of conversations now, and you can see all the different things that we've talked about. But today, we're getting into maybe the weeds a little bit <laughs> and getting into a question that often is asked in our day and age about uh, sexuality and about homosexuality in particular. And you may be wondering, this topic, again, do we really have to go over this? Uh, and the, the question is always um, put, you know, why does the church, why do pastors in particular always seem so obsessed to talk about such an issue? Uh, why, why do we always have to go back to the homosexuality issue? Some people even have the the idea that Christianity is all just about ragging on homosexuality that the bible is one of the big things is just destroying our sex lives and then that must control. be what it's all about yeah uh, and so it seems like it can often seem like christians and pastors in particular are super obsessed with these issues um and so the question is which came first the chicken or the egg does the church force the question on society all the time and just never lets it go the church is always aggressive or does society force the conversation on the church? Uh, maybe both. What do you think about that? Yeah, there's an interesting story in the book of Acts where Stephen is preaching a sermon, and he goes through a lot of the history of Israel, and um, he ends up saying that Jesus is the Christ, and um, one must believe in him. And it's interesting to hear the response of the teachers of the law who are going to execute Stephen because they think all he has just done is bash Israel, bash Israel's history and mo the, the law, the teaching of Moses. And, and so their idols are revealed by how they respond to Stephen's sermon. Huh. So if Stephen is talking about uh, faith in Jesus is the way to salvation, and um, it's not through the laws of Moses. That sounds to the Pharisees like, oh, it's all you ever talk about. That's all you care about. All you've been doing is just talking about Moses and, and mm -hmm. how bad he is. And so their idol is the Mosaic law. And the very same thing is happening in our culture with sexuality, where mm -hmm. in, in the course of my five years here at Ammon Valley, I have uh, spoken of the sin of homosexuality from the pulpit probably oh, uh, five or six times, like very pointedly. Um, occasionally, something would come up as a peripheral note in a sermon. Have you done a whole sermon on it before? I have. I know I have done at least one. I've done one on gender, and so that mm -hmm. had some connections to homosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think I've done two then in those five years. And, and like I said, occasionally it will come up as an application. Um, and one who is 
um, very passionate about this issue from the more uh, progressive or liberal standpoint would probably accuse me of, oh, it's all you ever talk about because mm-hmm. I would say that is an idol in our culture that will sort of poke at people very strongly. Now, general, every week we talk about the gospel. We talk about mm-hmm. our sin generally. Um, often there's a specific sin that we're talking about. This past week it was a lack of a prayer life. And, mm-hmm. and so there are all kinds of things that we talk about from the scriptures. But um, for one who has this idol in their life, it will seem like this is all we ever talk about. Yeah, it seems to me that for most of Western history... Uh, it was sort of a settled issue that homosexuality was wrong. And so it really wasn't up until maybe the 20th century, the sexual revolution in particular in the 60s, that this came to the fore and has been something that has been addressed by those outside the church uh, and in many ways trying to turn the tide of the culture and trying to flip the script and mm-hmm. and and transform society. Uh, and so the, the church has, in my view, mostly been reacting to uh, a cultural phenomenon, mm-hmm. not just trying to constantly barrage people uh, with with the, its view of, of sexuality. Yeah, and there's a quote from Martin Luther. Uh, I'd have to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but he says something along the lines of, the truly courageous Christian has to be where the battle is. Mm-hmm. And so the battle right now is not infant baptism versus uh, credo baptism in our culture. Yeah. Now, when we get together with other people who disagree with us, we can talk about those things because that's where you might say the battle is in mm-hmm. certain contexts. Yeah. But in the culture, the battle is in this arena of sexuality and particularly hmm homosexuality and uh, transgenderism, things like that. That's where the battle is, and so the courageous Christian should be there and should talk about these things. And um, I would even go so far as to say, uh, maybe I'll drop this bomb, that a minister who refuses to talk about Hmm. homosexuality and to preach those texts, to preach a text like Ephesians 5, which talks about marriage Hmm. and a man and a woman and what the roles of marriage are, a minister who is not saying those things is not a courageous minister is probably ashamed of God's word. Yeah, that's one way to lose the battle too. Yeah. Um, I could drop a similar bomb to say that maybe some Christians are overly obsessed with the homosexual (laughs) issue. Very true. And they do spend way too much time just, you know, on discernment blogs or whatever, just attacking anybody who would try to make a peep about how homosexuality is okay and they just spend their whole life uh, worried about this issue. So we have to be on guard against that too. That's a fair critique, I think. Yeah, you saw that a lot in the reaction to the um, the Revoice conference, I would say. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, where it, I don't know everything that was taught at that conference, but it yeah, seemed to me... endorse it. it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't... I don't I wouldn't endorse that either because I don't really know that much detail. However, I would say that it was very clear that in some of the reactions to that conference, it was more, how dare you talk about this? Mm -hmm. How dare you show care and concern for people who are attracted to Mm -hmm. people of the same sex? There was a lot of that in the reaction, I would say, to that conference. And again, I don't know if that necessarily means that the conference was great or if it was bad, but that is often there. How dare you mm-hmm. broach the topic of care and concern and hospitality towards 
homosexual people. So you're right. There is definitely uh, a problem on both sides. On the progressive wing, there would be the sort of ashamedness of the word of God and what it Mm. clearly teaches. And on the other side, probably a lack of love and hospitality. Yeah. So there, there could be some over obsession, I think. Sure. Um, but the real reason we're getting into it today that's been sort of brought into our context recently is because of our denomination, the CRC, the Christian reformed church, uh, has recently finalized and published a report, uh, which is in preparation for synod next year, uh, all about homosexuality. And it's been four years coming. Yeah. Four uh, plus years. And so we've been, anxiously awaiting it as a denomination it's going to prove pivotal whichever way it fell on and so mm-hmm. it just came out uh, earlier this month and mark was able to write a review so i want to hear your thoughts just real quickly about the report yeah in general the report was very solid um it promoted the biblical understanding the traditional orthodox understanding of not just sexuality but um <clears throat> but scriptural interpretation and um, other issues that are kind of surrounding this area of sexuality, not just homosexuality, but it dealt very strongly with the issue of pornography. It um, talked very helpfully, I would say, about the transgender issue. Um, And uh, even beyond that, talks about singleness and uh, cohabitation before marriage, divorce, polygamy, um, a lot of those things that don't get as much attention anymore because that's been turned to homosexuality, but certainly the Bible still talks about. So it was uh, a strong report biblically, and in throughout the report, there's also a pastoral tone, which I appreciated. There are many stories and examples of people's lives just to put human faces on some of these issues. I think that that's probably a danger of the yeah. theologically orthodox conservative viewpoint is that these just become uh sort of issues that we go to battle over and we actually forget abstract right that there there are real people who are maybe even listening to this podcast who struggle about these things and need to know that god is love that god forgives that Mm -hmm. god um, transforms and reconciles us through christ and so this report had a good amount of that tone, I would say, in it. It was strong on the Bible and in particularly the areas of rebuke of homosexual activity, um, but it was also uh, very hopeful, I think, as well. Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll read a the summary of the teaching that the report gives on the topic yeah. of homosexuality from pages 112 and 113 of the report. It was 176 pages long, and so um, it was good to read the whole thing, but at the same time, I think this little, these few sentences will summarize about maybe 25 of those pages. So the report said, this survey of relevant biblical texts, um, of course, which there are six texts in the scriptures that deal with the topic of homosexuality most directly, many, many others mm-hmm. that would deal with it, I would say indirectly. Yeah. Um, but it said, These biblical texts have shown that Scripture teaches in a clear, consistent, and compelling way that homosexual acts of any kind are sinful and not in agreement with God's will for his covenant people. The debate about same-sex sex, therefore, is not a situation in which there are two equal and opposing interpretations of the biblical evidence. Although a variety of revisionist arguments have been made, none of them 
are convincing, but rather ought to be justly judged as, quote, strained and unhistorical and evidence of the, quote, extraordinary maneuvers involved in the attempt to reread scripture. If I were going to summarize that little statement, it would be that one would have to engage in hermeneutical gymnastics Mm -hmm. in order to avoid the clear teaching of the Bible on this topic of homosexuality. And that is, in fact, what we would say that we see in in many authors. Mm -hmm. Um, One more recent author arguing in, in favor of homosexuality from a quote, biblical perspective is Matthew Vines, who tries to make the case that homosexuality is indeed okay, according to the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And we would say that requires some serious hermeneutical gymnastics. Yeah, it it, it requires that one would have to ignore not just those six texts, but um, many others. I think that in this conversation, there's often so much attention given to those some people call clobber verses. Yeah. However, I've already mentioned Ephesians 5, where we have the picture of marriage mm-hmm. from God's perspective through the Apostle Paul that a husband and a wife have different roles in marriage. Yeah. And um, that Ephesians 5 text would rarely be brought up in this conversation. Because it doesn't mention homosexuality at all. <laughs> <laughs> right, but it deals, I would say, even more foundationally with the right. topic of marriage and, and sexuality um, than some of those other verses which are particularly pointed at the activity of homosexuality. Yeah, I think so. the strongest scriptures against homosexuality are not even the ones that explicitly mention it. It would be mm. Ephesians 5 and I Genesis, think Genesis 1 and, 1 and 2. Yeah, right. And uh, N.T. Wright takes that position very much, where Genesis 1 and 2 um, is, is a strongly um, uh, heteronormative, uh, you might say, um, mm-hmm. text. And um, I don't know if he would use those terms exactly, but he notes that there's sun and moon, there's day and night, there's uh, sort of all of these, these complementary pairs that got light and darkness yeah. uh, that God creates. And then at the end, it's male and female. And so mm-hmm. if one, the, the irony of the interpretation of Genesis 1 for me is that often people will say, oh, it's figurative or it's not literal. And if yeah. one were to take the view that it is figurative, that would be the most pro-heterosexual text in um in the bible perhaps because the figurative meaning of it would have to be male and female are are the uh sort of part of god's beautiful creation that show his image so um the the more figurative interpretation of genesis one i would suggest um it heightens would heighten the importance of uh of marriage and the differentiation um, between male and female and how they Right, need how, each other. How they show the the image of God together. Right. So, anyways, um, it's a it's a good report generally. Um, I would say there is going to be some debate from the report, which will continue. Mm-hmm. Um, that it does not address very strongly homosexual desires. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that a lot of the more theologically conservative. Uh, people struggle with in the CRC's historic position where um, it's very clear that homosexual activity is wrong, but it could seem like it gives permission for 
homosexual desires as an orientation yeah the um, orientation they would say maybe is not sinful but acting upon the orientation is yeah maybe the report would go even further though and say that um if one doesn't act on their desires then they're okay and i think that we would be rightly uh, opposed to that attitude yeah. so um the 10th commandment is about our desires it's yeah. about coveting and so there is that example in God's word where um, this is you, can, you need a razor's edge to, to draw the line between temptation and desire. And okay. so certainly we can say temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus never desired to uh, bow down to Satan, um, turn a rock into bread. Jesus did not desire those things, mm-hmm. but he was tempted to have that desire. Yeah, man, that is a razor's edge. So um, we do want to say that about homosexuality as well, mm-hmm. that if a man covets another man to be his husband, then that would be sinful, yeah. um, even if he never is um, an acting homosexual. And so that sounds uh, pretty strict, but that is the nature of the Tenth Commandment. So while the report was quite conclusive then, there will probably be more discussion. That's what we can say. Yeah, definitely. And I think in general, though, it did show that pastoral tone and that very strong biblical foundation. So I'd say in general, a thumbs up for yeah, me. Yeah, there's reason to be uh, encouraged if you are in the CRC um, and you're conservative as we are. Uh, looking at now our, another reason to get into this discussion, I mean, that was sort of the occasion for the, for it being on our radar. Yeah. Uh, but it, as a youth pastor, I'm always really interested in, in this particular question because this is one that brings up a lot of questions that youth have about God. Mm-hmm. Um, people have a hard time understanding why homosexual marriage is wrong. It's, it's one thing to explain to somebody why something like abortion is evil, even if they're a pro-choice individual. Uh, you can make the moral argument quite simply to them mm-hmm. that abortion is murder. Uh, it's the taking of an innocent life. Um, they may not agree with you, but they can at least feel the weight of your moral argument. Um, and so it's harder to explain why homosexuality is bad Um, beyond just saying it's bad because God says it's bad. Mm -hmm. So I think it's right to take the position that God gives his laws for our benefit because adhering to them fits with with how we were designed as creatures to live. And so, for example, uh, God tells us not to steal because if everyone was going around making a habit of stealing, uh, this would lead to people wanting to stop being generous and stop mm. wanting to have their their stuff uh, available for people's needs. You would be fearful that you would never get it back, so mm. you would stop being <laughs> hospitable. You would start to maybe hoard it a little bit, protect it. Mm. You would keep your car inside your garage. You wouldn't even let people look at it. Mm. Um, and God tells us not to lie because if everyone were making a habit of lying all the time, there would be a breakdown of trust in mm. marriages and friendships and in all kinds of common social contracts that exist in the world, maybe with employers and employees, uh, with somebody you've you've hired to do a job for you, um, or maybe even between institutions like the government or the banking system, there mm. would be a, a breaking down of trust, um, and this would be really bad for society. Uh, so therefore, we could see that God's rules are for our good. So when something is prohibited by God, when God tells us not to do something, we should receive that as something he's doing for our well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, God says, 
do don't don't murder people and that should be seen as for our good we should receive that law as a blessing not as a burden Hmm. because it not only protects us but it protects others and it establishes a world of peace if we're not going around murdering people uh, yeah, especially as Christians, if the book of First John is really clear that the laws of God are not burdensome, and to go to live in the way of Christ, to live yeah. like Jesus, is joy. That is life. Um, that is where we experience the peace of God, um, even when it's difficult at times. Um, certainly, the Christian has a massive amount of peace, having. Uh, forgiven, been forgiven of our sin and living with a clear conscience before God. Yeah, and if you struggle with thinking that the law could be good as a Christian, just read Psalm 119 and you'll have plenty of reasons to see how the the law is actually for our our benefit. Mm -hmm. This is also sort of the fundamental theme of Proverbs is that living wisely, which is living according to God's ways, leaning not on your own understanding, but on God, Right, that's Proverbs three, which mm. is sort of paradigmatic of the whole book of Proverbs. Uh, how that brings blessing into your life in general. Following God's law bring, brings blessing. That's the whole point of God's law. Mm. Um, it's it's sort of like guardrails on a mountain highway. Mm. Uh, those guardrails are not something that you see as being restrictive or constrictive. You see them as being very good, and you're mm-hmm. happy that that they are there. Mm. Um, having those guardrails allows us to drive with more confidence the same way that a fence may feel, make kids feel more protected and they could play more in the yard without having to be fearful of a predator, you know? Yeah. And so in all of these different moral laws, you can see how most people in general, even non-Christians see them as being good laws. Don't murder people. Yeah. Most atheists (laughs) are okay with not murdering people. Um, being told not to cheat on your spouse. Most atheists are okay with with that, and they uphold that. Um, nevertheless, it's still difficult, though, to explain why homosexuality is bad. So people might ask, what's wrong with two consenting adults who do choose to do something in the privacy of their own home? Like, why do you care about that as a Christian? So this this libertarian sort of sexual ethic is quite hard to object to. Indeed, many Christians in asking this question have felt the need to surrender their faith simply because they can't see the harm in prohibiting these two adults from doing whatever they, they want to do to make them happy. And so this is, I think, because our culture has a very fundamental set of assumptions and about what makes us human and how human freedom mm. uh, makes us human. So a good quote that I'll share comes from Justice Anthony Kennedy. It was in his uh, decision for the, the Roe v. Wade uh, case. He, he says this, and I think that this is really important for people to grasp. It really says a lot about how we and modernity view the world and view our place in the world. So here's what he says. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. So the heart of human liberty liberty is being able to define who you are, what life's all about, what the universe is all about, and what it means to be a human. And so this is a fundamentally different mm. sort of perspective that, that Christians would have. Yeah. Um, and so in response to this, what, what can we say? What, how can we as Christians uh, see, th- how, do we, how do we as Christians see things differently? 
Another quote that I think is helpful in answering this question mm-hmm. comes from a, a pastor named Matthew Mason, who is a British pastor, uh, I believe. And he says this, in modernity, freedom, quote, freedom, is radicalized, and it's turned into the very root of human authenticity and dignity. Free moral action becomes self-construction. So we construct who we are. We define who we are. Law, which are the norms by which we govern action, is disconnected from nature and radically internalized. So law, which has historically been seen to be outside of us, that determines how we are to live. There is a moral law. It's now disconnected from from nature. Uh, so our embodied existence is a nature. I'm naturally a man, and that should, in the Christian worldview, says that I should see myself as mm. a man. I'm called to be a man. But now this law has been disconnected from my nature and radically internalized, he says. So I, my, I become a law unto myself. I can, I can come up with my own law. I can define what my existence is all about and what the world is all about. I can live in my own version of reality, essentially. And then he goes on to say, the only external limit is thou shalt do no harm. As long as I'm not hurting anyone, as long as two consenting adults in their own bedroom aren't hurting anyone, what's the harm in that? Yeah, and I would say that eventually even that rule will be taken down as too limiting. Um, that yeah. that this idea of do no harm, um, well, what if someone likes to be harmed? And what if someone likes to harm others and they get together? And mm-hmm. um, then who's to say that that is wrong? You're it, harming them by not allowing them to harm others. Yeah, and so <laughs> it's postmodernism on steroids, uh, this mentality of my my own truth you know be, uh live live your truth be you be you uh, you do you i think is maybe what um young people were saying a few years ago i don't know if they say that anymore yeah. but uh uh it, it, it's the idea that you construct your own reality and this is of yeah. course very it's diametrically opposed to the christian view which values truth not just truth with a capital t but the truth in all matters that we uh speaking the truth letting your yes be yes and your no be no just being plain about what reality is in front of us and um embracing what god has made receiving that with thanksgiving and um (laughs) sort of living in some security in that Mm -hmm. knowledge Mm -hmm. one of my favorite songs that gets at this ethic and expresses it wonderfully is by a country music artist named Casey Musgraves, who in her song, Follow Your Arrow, it's a fun song, it's catchy, it may get stuck in your head, (laughs) but she expresses this very modern ethic of human freedom uh, perfectly in this song. And the main chorus says, make lots of noise and kiss lots of boys or kiss lots of girls if that's something you're into. When the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, roll up a joint or don't, just follow your arrow wherever it points. Follow your arrow wherever it points. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's the summary. And um, it's it's a good summary because it's absurd. It's so absurd that without realizing it, she's showing the philosophical bankruptcy yeah. of that way of living it's like she can't even get through or don't or do or whatever Mm -hmm. and and there's no solidity to that um now uh a lot of this sexual liberation um the sexual revolution 
it is coming out of an era where there was probably too much rigidity in sure. culture that said, if you're not married by the time you're 24, <laughs> if you don't have uh, two kids and the white picket fence and the the dog, you know, sitting outside for you and things wrong with you get home from work and the di- dinner isn't on the table at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Then that is you are living a dysfunctional, terrible life. And yeah. so there was so much rigidity, I think, particularly in American culture that it exploded in, in the opposite direction. Right. And so what we're we are not arguing today for that white picket fence existence no. for every single person. Um, but certainly we need to recognize that there is tension between the need for freedom and expression and for truth. And what we see in our culture today is deconstruction of the the truth, uh, the plain reality that's before us, that marriage is a man and a woman yeah. who can uh, have real sexual union with one another because of how their bodies are made. And that is the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's plainly in front of everyone to accept. Um, and so we need to accept that truth as a solid foundational truth about what marriage is um, without going too far to to say that is going to be the norm for every single person and that's what every person is called into. And yeah. this marriage has to look exactly like um, the cleavers, you know, and leave it to <laughs> beaver if it's going to be... Uh, a marriage that would be pleasing to God. So yeah. uh, we need that truth, but we also do, I would say, want to maintain the need for some freedom within the bounds of the limits that God puts on it. Yeah, the fundamental difference between these two competing visions of living in reality for the modernist, the secularist, it is I rule myself. Yeah. For the Christian, it is God rules me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are two fundamentally opposed views and ways of living. So, so I want to get back to the question then of is homosexual homosexuality really all that bad? How can we say that it's bad as long as people are choosing to do what they want? And I think we don't even have to get into all the, the so-called clobber verses. We don't have to read all six of them. Uh, we've already, I think, given a pretty compelling vision from scripture using Ephesians 5, but I do want to read Genesis uh, 1 and 2, just a few verses from each chapter. Mm. So if we look at Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we begin to see uh, what the first real purpose of marriage. So we see in this famous account, it says, so God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we already see this differentiation in the sexes. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we see uh, in this telling of the creation story, which in chapter one of Genesis is sort of the the big uh, the zoomed out story, looking at all of creation being made. Uh, here we see that there, that man and woman are being called uh, towards the procreational purpose of marriage. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that is the calling here. But then in the next chapter, we sort of get a zoomed in account of the creation story. Mm. And it emphasizes something different about marriage. And so we read this in chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and this is actually his, the first recorded human words, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Hmm. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, because of this differentiation, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this this uniting of Adam and Eve in the garden is a a type of 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 marriages ever since it's a uniting mm-hmm. of a male and a female so that's the the second purpose of marriage is uniting well and what strikes me there is every person who has ever lived has a mom and a dad every person who has ever lived has a mom and a dad mm-hmm. and that matters it right. matters who their dad is and who their mom is and uh, it doesn't just matter genetically but certainly in God's design, it matters because mom and dad know me and I know them and I learn what it is to be a, a man and what it is to have an, a relationship with a woman in this foundational primary relationship between parents and a child. And so um, you, see, you see that really come out. Um, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she will be called woman. And I've heard it said that um, uh, there is this emphasis here that um, man and woman make life uh, in in that uh, in that text, of course, in Genesis right. one as well. And of course, God blesses us with the gift of children, and so we don't want to be maybe too humanistic about things, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time. That is what is required for life to um, come into this world. Yeah. And so here we see those two purposes of marriage. And this helps us, I think, to then explain um, at least a little bit to give a reason to why it's so bad to engage in acts of homosexual sex. Um, It's because at heart, it's a rejection, I think, of our created nature. We're created male and female. Uh, And so... It's And God has created us for a certain purpose. We could say that there's a reason our bodies, even our reproductive organs, are the way that they are. Uh, it's so that we can be united mm-hmm. physically as well as spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and so on. And so that we can be reproductive. God has created us for these two purposes. And so this is why I think uh, we could then say homosexuality is unnatural. This is what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 1, verse 26. He says it's contrary to nature. So as such, homosexuality functionally denies and rejects God's right to tell us, his created creatures, how we are to live. In this sense, it denies his lordship. It says, no, you do not get to tell me how to live, even though you've inscribed it on my very body. Hmm. I'm going to live how I choose to live. This is why I think it gets... We, we get the word abomination from Leviticus 18 and, and 20 when it's talking about men sleeping with men. It calls this an abomination. Um, this this is a very bad thing indeed. I think some Christians have maybe taken that word and really gotten way too obsessed about homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And they, this is, these are the sorts of people you see on the streets. Yeah, almost as if that's the only abomination. Right. You know, that, and if there's no other be. abominations, there, yep. there are plenty of other abominations in Scripture. Um, it, having, having an affair would be mm-hmm. an abomination, if not a, a worse one. I, I think it's really, really bad because it's breaking the bonds of this 
uniting pair of marriage. Yeah, well, and the uh, the word abomination too um, has such a obviously it is a negative word, but it has so much cultural baggage attached to it. Yeah, that that's ma- true. Maybe we could also say this is a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> it is uh, and i think then that would help people understand the impact that it has on them not just in the sight of god it is wrong but the impact that it has on them um so to translate it in that way from leviticus 18:22 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman this is a disaster mm-hmm. um and so i think that helps people understand what god is getting at by giving that law yeah it's so that's that's how i think homosexuality is not good because it goes against the grain of the created universe uh, and it is fundamentally a rejection and a denial of God's sovereignty, his lordship. It is saying no. God says to do something and it is saying no. Even though you've made me for a certain purpose, I'm not going to fulfill this purpose. Mm. And so it highlights uh, a rejection of God, a godlessness, a rebellion against God. And I think that's what Romans 1 is really mm-hmm. getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Romans 1 is is one of those central texts, probably along with 1 Corinthians 6, the main text that people go to to uh, study this issue. And yeah. it's, it's even important that we say these things, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, because um, this gets to the hermeneutic, that we need to have when we're talking about this. Hermeneutic means an approach to Scripture. So um, here's what I here's why I think that's important. Sometimes people will say, well, we are talking about marriage and we're talking about love. And so let's find all of the texts in the Bible about love and acceptance and welcoming people in. Uh-huh. Um, and those are the texts that we're going to apply to this conversation about homosexuality and if somebody can, could be acceptable in God's sight. Uh-huh. And and often that hermeneutic will lead people away from the texts that deal most pointedly and particularly with the topic that they are studying. Um, yeah. That is the... I mean, that is in every hermeneutic that I have read um, from the open and affirming position, people who are in favor of same-sex marriage, they use that hermeneutic that will elevate certain texts of the Bible that really have nothing to do with sexuality and Mm -hmm. talk about God's acceptance of us and uh, God's, um, you know, how he brings all different kinds of people into his community. and, and that is true that God accepts us in yeah. Christ and brings all different kinds of people into the covenant community. However, um, the reformed hermeneutic, and I would say every Christian's hermeneutic should be, if we have a question about homosexuality, we're going to look at the texts that deal particularly with homosexuality. So for the new Testament, that is Romans one and first Corinthians six. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that speaking of inclusivity, first Corinthians six, six says, well, I can just read it. Do not be deceived. Neither sex, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then some very important words. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Mm. That's First Corinthians 6, 1 through 9. It's saying that you have lived in these ways. You, th- this is what some of you were, 
but you've now been washed and sanctified and justified in Christ. Uh, so there is inclusivity. Everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God if they come in through the door who is Jesus Christ. Yeah, and so somebody who wants to know about homosexuality or have a conversation as a Christian with other people about this topic, I think that's one of the principles they need to keep at the forefront. Let's talk about the texts that deal with this most pointedly. Um, I would say it is uh, the, the tool of the devil to distract people from those and try to get people to um, emphasize more general kinds of ideas that the Bible teaches, which could very well be things the Bible does teach in other places. Hmm. Um, let's stay on task. Let's stay focused. Um, you see this in lots of other areas, of course, with Christian practice. Um, the, I think particularly of the topic like pedo communion, where um, there there is a particular text of the Bible that talks about how to celebrate the sacrament of communion, and it says that we should examine ourselves and we should discern the body. We should think about what we're doing so that we don't eat and drink judgment on ourselves. That's the most pointed description of how one should receive communion. Mm -hmm. And the, the pedo communion advocate will often point to all kinds of other issues in or, or all other, te other texts in the Bible to say, well, God welcomes uh, covenant children into his community. That is true, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Um, and, and God is love. And, and well, uh, Judas received the sacrament right before he, and sort of using mm -hmm. that as a normative of how um, lots of people might be taking it that aren't actually in the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden it becomes so muddled when you get away mm -hmm. from the texts that deal directly with the topic. And so Christians, we need to stay on task and focused mm -hmm. on these texts, um, not just these, uh, the, the six in uh, the scriptures that deal pointedly with homosexuality, but when we're talking about marriage, Ephesians 5, Genesis 1 and 2, mm -hmm. um, Jesus teaching on marriage and, and divorce. Um, these texts are what we need to interpret and understand instead of being distracted by maybe more general or vague statements about the Bible. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so it has to do with how we prioritize Absolutely. Um, clear statements versus not-so-clear statements or indirect statements. Yeah, yeah. And, again, those, those things are true, that God welcomes people into his covenant community, but um, as Zach read, the, that these are people who are repentant and who have been washed, who have been justified, who have... Uh, said no to that uh, sexual immorality or that greed or um, you know, all the other things that are idolatry that are listed there. So um, I think that that's important for Christians to know and how we approach it. Let's talk about the texts that talk about this. Yeah, and without fail, they're all quite clear. Yes. I don't know how they could really be any clearer. Uh, <laughs> I guess you can make a case that the First Corinthians 6 is uh, talking about a certain sort of man-boy love, pedophilia, essentially. That's what some commentators will do. They'll look at the Greek there, and they'll make the case that it's talking about um, pedophiles and men who sort of kidnap exploit. boys and exploit them, yeah. um, which is also horrendous. But even if, you, even if that was the case in that one, I don't think you can... Uh, you can wiggle out of the other texts. I think that they're all quite strong, clear, uh, and 
unquestionable really yeah and and putting another uh another application in here of how we can talk about these things with particularly christians i will often say what did you read in the bible to make you think that that's a question we should always be asking as christians when somebody comes with a new idea um, that seems outside of orthodoxy that should be our first question. What did you read in the Bible to convince you of that idea? And there is nothing in the Bible that would convince somebody proactively, positively about the goodness of same-sex unions. Hmm. There, there's nothing that, that somebody would say, um, I was reading in the Bible and it looks here like that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, the most that anyone could do is deconstruct and dismiss dozens of texts in the Bible that deal with the topic of homosexuality or marriage, but they would never read something that would say, and this looks good. And on the other side of that, um, we we do want to say, sometimes we will read things in the Bible that will change how we understand. And so we are not opposed to change and to reformation. Mm -hmm. Um, You have, of course, the reformation happening because Martin Luther was reading the Bible and in Romans 1, he learned that there's a righteousness that we have from God that is by faith. And so he brings the scriptures to other people and says, look what I read in the Bible. We need to change what this we're doing. This is exactly why there's a movement of pro-homosexuality in the church called the New Reformation. Okay, right. Yeah. And so they, they believe that any change is fair game. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that we do need to be open to any change that the Bible commands us to make. Yeah. So we're not just... Uh, fuddy-duddy conservatives who just never want there to be any change in the world. Um, But I don't believe I've ever heard somebody approach me and say, I was reading in the Bible, and now I'm convinced that homosexuality is a good thing. It is a movement that has come from outside the church and very much infiltrated the church from without and not something that has been stirred up from within as things like the civil rights movement and... Um, the Reformation have. Yeah, this is like the age-old debate over the meaning of the Reformed catchphrase, reformed and always yeah, reforming. it is. Um, and always being reformed, maybe is a better way of putting it. Uh, in the traditional Reformed context, this means that we should always go back to Scripture, always go back to what Scripture teaches and make sure what, whatever we're teaching is not more modern, but almost more ancient. It's mm. more biblical. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the progressive Reformed Christians among us will say, no, this means like we always need to be reformed and always progressing and always being changed, being transformed. Um, But there's... Into something different. Yeah, Fundamentally different. Yeah. And that's not at all what we want to do. We want to allow scripture to always speak uh, to us and we always want to be reframing and reforming uh, and going back to what scripture says. Yeah, like in Jeremiah, find the old paths find the old, you know, return right. to the old paths that the Lord was leading you in. That's um, That could lead us in some interesting places, and maybe that will c- produce repentance and change in churches to find those old paths and to recenter ourselves on the basics of God's Word. So there could be a possibility for change and transformation and discomfort and trusting God and faith and moving into a new place, um, but it's just very clear from the Bible that that is not going to lead into the advocacy for same-sex marriage. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting things we were discussing as before we came on air 
that I would like to hear more about from you is um, something you said about uh, the inequality mm. of homosexuality in compared to heterosexual heterosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. What did you What did you mean by the they're un- unequal? They're different. They're fundamentally not the same thing. Yeah, heterosexual marriage uh, by its nature can can see and uh, a man and a woman engaged in marriage can enjoy sexual union with one another. And sexual union by its nature generally will have the possibility of producing children. Of course, the exceptions are there of elderly people who are married and um, other matters of infertility. But by its nature, heterosexual marriage can, generally speaking, produce children. Whereas by its nature, a marriage between or, or, or uh, sexual activity between two men or two women cannot ever do that. And so they are fundamentally unequal. And hmm. this is why the issue is very different, why it's not a civil rights issue, I would say. So hmm. what, what was the civil rights movement? It was an enforced inequality. Right. It was saying that we're um, enforce you know, the difference between black and white. Right, people. people were saying things that just were absolutely not true. Um, a black man can't be a quarterback of a team. Uh-huh. Uh, black people uh, maybe don't have, uh, you know, all, all kinds of racist they're, sorts of things. I don't even want to repeat. Equal people. Um, yeah, and that black people can't do certain things that maybe white people should be doing, especially in terms of leadership in our yeah. culture. And so these are terrible racist lies that have been revealed to be lies because black people are quarterbacks and are mm-hmm. um, CEOs and mathematicians and um, contributing to society in all kinds of wonderful ways. And so that was an enforced inequality based on lies. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between heterosexual and homosexual marriage, marriage um, is real inequality that is based on the truth. And so where there is inequality um, and sort of, you might say, an embrace of inequality, there will be a hunger to make that inequality, to, to correct it, to a hunger away. for justice. Yeah. And so um, that hunger for justice will always be there in, in the lesser form of quote-unquote marriage and homosexual marriage because two men cannot have a child and two women cannot have a child. That's more of a philosophical argument than a biblical argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we can see that that hunger for justice would never be met. Yeah, not unless we somehow were able to create a biological means to take two sperm cells and yep. to join them to create a, a human being. Even then, it is unequal because it did not come from a sexual union then. Yeah. It didn't come from... Sexual. It happened in a lab. It didn't happen when two, when a man and a woman love one another and express that love through sexual union. That's what produces a child, which is wonderful and impossible in Mm -hmm. the um, homosexual case. Yeah, that is really interesting. So, maybe speaking prophetically, there will be attempts in the future to make this scientifically possible and to erode any. Uh, limitations that there are in the way, any roadblocks that there are in the way of 
of men being able to reproduce with each other. But Well, you have in the story of Cain and Abel an enmity between brothers because there was an inequality, right? And, and so the, the inequality was in the quality of their sacrifices. And so what happened? Cain raged against Abel because, um, because he didn't offer the same good sacrifice to God that Abel did. And he ended up killing him, which is not really what I'm suggesting will automatically happen with this inequality. But there will be enmity, we would say, hmm. between, um, between these, these two uh, groups. And uh, I'm sad about that. Um, but yeah. I think the, the way to address that enmity is to say, embrace God's design. Yeah. And let's, let's be people together who uh, love one another and try to live our best to follow God's design, which for the single person is celibacy. And for the, the man who wants to be married is to marry a woman, the woman who wants to be married to marry a man. That's the way to address, I would say, the inequality. Yeah, that's a good good uh segue into maybe the next question we should ask ourselves is what what do we say as pastors to someone who is same-sex attracted uh what room do they have in the church Uh, what what kind of life are we to call them to um should we call them to repent of their orientation um and to work to become straight quote straight (laughs) um what, what do we do as pastors? How do we, how do we handle this? I think the Christian Reformed Church's report on how to yeah. pastorally navigate a lot of these issues was really helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think the old way and the, one of the wrong ways of approaching it is to say that everyone needs to be straight, everyone needs to be heterosexual and married. And again, that's more yeah. of that white picket fence existence that was promoted Mm -hmm. very strongly in um, previous generations. And that's not really what the Bible calls for. That's not the picture of the full human existence. It Mm -hmm. is not marriage. Um, And while God calls many people wonderfully um, into marriage, uh, the call on any person who is not called to be married is to be a celibate, pure um, individual, single individual, that isn't a uh, a kind of casting them off into eternal loneliness and uh, out of fellowship. Um, In America, it it can be perceived that way because of our intense individualism. Mm -hmm. And and so if one is not married, they would feel isolated. They would feel like no one could really know them. That's more of an indictment of American culture, I would say, than the biblical mandate to celibacy. Yeah, because we are such an isolated culture. Uh, there are several single people that I know, and the question becomes for the church, are you welcoming them? Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. are you sharing your life with them? Yeah. Uh, one good book on this is uh, oh, Spiritual gospel. spiritual Friendship is what I was thinking yeah. by, <laughs> uh, by Wesley Hill. Sure. And I'm not going to go on the record and say I endorse everything that Wesley Hill says or not. I, I don't know if I do or not. I know that there's debates about West Hill's work, but his book about spiritual friendship is a good book just advocating for, look, there are many gay celibate, that's what he calls them, gay celibate Christians. We can disagree about the language. Sure. Um, but he says there are many of us, people like me, who are same-sex attracted and are committed to living celibate for the sake of Christ. 
and Sam Albury is another one. Right. Yeah. So what do you do with, with people like this? I actually know several others that I just know in my personal life, um, that are the, in the exact same situation. Uh, how do we as the church go out of our way to enfold, uh, same sex attracted singles, but also opposite sex attracted singles. Mm -hmm. Uh, we should have a higher value for the place of singleness in the church. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. That, the focus on the family movement was really good in emphasizing the importance of the family, but it probably went a little bit too far in making the family the end-all and be-all of human existence, particularly among theologically conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. And so we need to deconstruct that a little bit with the Bible, saying what the Apostle Paul said is, it would be better if many of you are like me, not married. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that it would be better is not, oh, you got freedom, you can do whatever you want, it's just total independence. No, the reason it's better is you're called into different kinds of ministry. Um, you're, you're called into different kinds of fellowship that are wonderful than what I can experience, what you or I can experience as married yeah. men. Yeah. Um, that's great. Uh, for example, I, I talk about the prison occasionally, and I tell my guys at prison, look, it's good if any of you are not married uh, because you can do a kind of ministry that uh, that I couldn't do. For example, if I weren't married, I'd be here with you guys three nights a week. I'd be hanging out with you mm-hmm. guys in the prison, I, I, but I have a family that I need to care for and pay attention to and a wife who we need to build our relationship, and so I just can't do those things. Mm-hmm. But um, man, for single people, uh, homosexual, heterosexual, um, they have opportunities to build friendships, uh, to do missions um, in a way that's a bit more detached. That's happening in our own congregation right now where a a widow is in Africa and that would be a lot more complicated if she were married and had small children at home. And so she has this opportunity to go do it. She took it. It's great. It's been a a good thing for her to do. Yeah. This isn't to say we want to heap on guilt to single people. Like you should be doing more because I think that that can be common. I felt that as a single man, I got got married this last year. Like you should be doing so much. All of your free time should be spent at church, (laughs) you know, feeding the hungry and so on. (laughs) We don't want to say that, but it is to say that, look, you, you, you do have less uh, like demands on your Mm -hmm. life from Mm -hmm. those around you that you are called to, uh, to nurture and provide for and uh, friendship is pretty different it can be different for oh, yeah. a single person like you can have oh, for sure way more interaction with various friends and that can be really exciting and nourishing and so again the call to celibacy is not a call to loneliness to isolation yeah it's actually just the opposite a call to a different kind of fellowship than what is experienced between yeah. a man and woman in marriage. I do think that it's true that the American church could do a much better job in folding single people into the full fellowship of the church and not making them feel like, like lower class citizens or like junior varsity members of the team. Uh, we should consider them as equally valuable uh, and we should go out of our way to be especially hospitable to them. Not as if we're trying to show sympathy because their life must be so bad, but to share fellowship and to share mm-hmm. a sense of family with them, especially those singles that are not living close to their hometown where they grew up, but they are uh, away from home. And we, 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 we should see it as our responsibility to 
to uh, welcome them into our very lives. And West Hill's book, he talks about one of the difficulties of being in his position is that um, friendship for many people is seen as being a very transient sort of thing. Mm. It comes and it Mm -hmm. goes. And that's the one thing that makes marriage pretty different by definition is that Mm -hmm. it's lifelong. So there's a sense of stability. Um, But with friendship, most people view it as just, you know, if it, if it happens, if I get a friend, that's good. If I lose a friend, well, that's life. Mm-hmm. If I get a job three states over and that calls me away from, from here, yeah, I'll lose my friends and that's just how it goes. Kind of like he, how people think of church. Right. And so <laughs> he sort of is advocating for taking a more serious approach to friendship, not trying to say that it should be like marriage, but we should, we should highly value our web of relationships with people when making decisions about moving across the country. Um, yeah. And, uh, that's a really good point. And maybe, uh, shifting a little bit as we close, uh, a question that could be also helpful if people are having conversations. Um, one, the first question that I mentioned earlier, if you're talking with a Christian about this issue, you would want to say, where in the Bible did you read that? That would help you to establish if this person is, does, if they even care about what the Bible says about the issue or not. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we would want to say we need to base our beliefs on what the scriptures teach. But if you're talking with a non-believer about the issue, I think the Christian can boldly stand on the fact that marriage was instituted and created by God. Yeah. So um, we, we do want to say, if you're, if you're talking with a non-believer about this issue of homosexuality, and they're like, what's your problem with it? What's your issue? I think a good response could be, I believe God made marriage, and then therefore God sets the standard for what a marriage is, what a marriage is supposed to accomplish, and uh, what would define something that would be a good marriage or a bad pseudo marriage. Uh-huh. And so certainly we can say God established it. Genesis 1 and 2 um, confirmed throughout the Old and New Testaments that it is uh, between a man and a woman. So we would say God made it, God instituted marriage, so he can establish what that looks like. And in the Bible, we learn it's a man and a woman. Yeah. And if we define marriage as just a social contract between two consenting people, mm-hmm. Why, why do you want to get yeah. married anyway? What's your desire with getting married? Maybe other than like, you know, taxes and c- certain yeah. uh, legal Civil benefits. Civil union <laughs> attitude, yeah. Uh, like why do you care so much about, about getting married? Um, that's another question I, I would ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we hope that this has been helpful and has uh, maybe prodded you along a little further, helped you have a better uh, sense of your your thinking, a better sense of why the Bible uh, outlaws and prohibits homosexuality. Um, I hope that you've also gathered that we we don't talk about this every day of our lives as pastors. <laughs> uh, we, we don't have any hatred or any hard feelings or uh, any sort of uh, judgmental thoughts towards homosexuals. Um, mm. They may think that we do, just mm. given what we believe, I guess, but yeah, we we want we say all of this. We hope in love um, mm-hmm. and in, in care, knowing that there this this stuff matters, and that the gospel uh, is is important to go out, and people need to hear it. 
So we do call people to repentance. We call ourselves to repentance. Mm-hmm. We call everyone to repentance, mm-hmm. to believe in Christ. Yeah, we're called into fullness of life through Jesus Christ. And that's where the fullness of life comes, not through a human relationship, not through marriage, um, but through repentance and belief in Christ. And so that promise is certainly there just as much for the same-sex attracted person as it is for um, either of us who are married to women. Um, And so that is hopefully the key that comes from this. Uh, Anybody who's listening, you are called into fullness of life through Jesus Christ and to find your joy, your peace, your hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So um, that gospel applies equally to all people. I think that is a good way to conclude. Hmm. And um, if anybody who is listening this has ever struggled in this way, um, hopefully uh, you can talk with somebody uh, who is a believer and who is solid in the Bible, but also who has a really soft and compassionate heart for you as a person. Hmm. And I hope that that happens. Maybe this is God's way of pushing you into a conversation like that. Um, not just for yeah. uh, the sake of the kingdom of God, but for your own personal sake that you would find life in Christ. Yeah, I think this is as as this is such a controversial issue. We sh- we really want to invite uh, discussion, mm-hmm. and we would love to hear from you. Uh, some of you have been emailing us. We we always appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening, you guys. Uh, we'll catch you back here in a week's time. Until right. then, the Lord be with you. Yep. Bye.